0: Welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Caleb. And this is Andrew. And it is great to be with you all again. It's been a long time. And uh, Andrew and I have some legitimate uh, excuses for it being so long since our last episode. For one, we wanted to take a break. (laughs) We've been doing this show for a couple years now, basically nonstop. And uh, spring had just rolled around, so we decided to take a little sabbatical. But there's also another reason, and that's that we kind of ran into this uh, sticky situation where we kind of knew where we wanted to go for the next couple episodes, but we just couldn't really make it work. We were working on a a red jacket biography, kicking around some ideas for doing some uh, more modern time episodes. Uh, For example, uh, some uh, Seneca land grabs that happened in the 1960s then also trying to tie into our narrative. And we were just having a lot of trouble. We were having little bits of work here and there, but really couldn't get anything solid down. So Andrew said, okay, let's take a step back. And what is next in the narrative, Andrew, for our timeline of history? Today, we are going to be discussing something that we've talked about in numerous episodes leading up to this time, and that would be the 1794 Treaty of Canandaigua. So Andrew and I are going to do our very best. I'll be honest, I've spent Couple years reading about this stuff, and I even live in the areas that this took place, so there's a lot of resources to learn this, but it's pretty confusing stuff. Let's set up the board again, really quick. The American Revolution's over, and the European and American governments have gotten together and formed the Treaty of Paris, and they consulted no indigenous people anywhere about these treaty rights. So now the people of the Longhouse. They have to deal with not only a new federal government that's just been created in the Americans, but they need to rebuild their own government. Because from the time that the Peacemakers started the League of the Iroquois, up until this point, the League has never been through such a catastrophic event. The Seneca and Cayuga had all their towns burned by Sullivan. The Oneida supported the Patriots, as we mentioned before. The Mohawks went all the way in with the British. And now the Mohawks have fled up into Canada... And when they come back, their farms are all occupied by Americans. But as Caleb alluded to, none of the six nations surrendered, neither individually nor as a whole with the Confederacy. There was no decisive battle. If the Americans came to your town and burned it down, they just ran away and then came back. And in our last episode, we talked about the Western Indian War, that a lot of these former prop nations of the Iroquois have now thrown off their reins and they're going back to being, you know, completely autonomous and they've decided that they're going to wage war with the newly formed American government. The Iroquois nations really don't know where they're going to side at this point in time. Some of them are leaning one way, some are leading another. Some of them are still in mourning after losing so many of their family and their homes. And the U.S., as we had alluded to, is dealing with a myriad of their own issues. For one thing, their money was absolutely worthless. They had issued pretty much paper money. And when I say paper money, I mean literally they like printed it on the printing press and handed it out to troops. It was totally useless. It was backed by nothing. They hadn't even set up a mint yet. And then you have these individual states that are squabbling amongst themselves on what pieces of frontier land they can grab because they all have different claims, which we'll get into. And the United States is operating on the Articles of Confederation, and it pretty much gave very little power to the federal government. So they couldn't even collect taxes or enforce any of their own laws. So that's where some of their headaches come from. And then we alluded to the Northwest Indian War is going on as well, and the Americans have had two armies destroyed from from underneath them. And on the side, New York State itself is dealing with its war debt by selling preemption rights of all the lands in western New York. Now, what the heck does a preemption right mean, Caleb? Okay, Andrew, let's try and put this into layman terms so people can understand it. Say you own a house. Okay, I do own a house. Yep. And say you are intending to sell that house, or maybe you're not intending to sell that house. You might stay in your house for 30 years, or you might turn around and sell it tomorrow, and that is your choice because you own the house. But a preemptive right would be the government selling the right to a buyer to buy your house. So they wouldn't sell my house, but they would say that. What? Okay, so uh, let me try and explain this. So you go to sell, you decide, let's say hypothetically, you want to sell your house. Yes. You cannot sell it to whoever you want. Why not? because the preemption rights of your house have already been sold. So this was basically a way the government could make sure they don't get in a bidding war with the Indians on the land. Basically, they were taking away the bartering power from the Indian nations by selling the purchasing rights to individual people or corporations. So the government would say, okay, I'm going to sell Caleb the rights to buy Andrew's house for $1,000. So now I am the only person that can buy your house when it comes up for sale or if it doesn't come up for sale. Therefore, when it comes time for you to sell your house, guess what? You can only sell it to me, which means that you can't get the top value for your house. So these weird government dealings are going on. And they were kind of like lottery sales too because they were betting on the fact that the Indians would sell their land. So it was gambling. Uh, you would get investors to pool all this money under the hope that the in- you could pressure the Indians to sell their land because then you could make a huge profit. So where it gets even more sticky, Andrew, is uh, we, we picture this land being in New York today, but it was actually other states that had already purchased these preemptive rights to the Seneca land. So New York is saying this should be our land, but Connecticut and Massachusetts had already purchased the rights to it, which if you look on a map, they're nowhere near it. And so this was creating a lot of tension amongst the states. And that is where Phelps and Gorham come into the story. Two American businessmen that got backers and they would put in a bid to have all of the land from Seneca Lake, Geneva. Geneva all the way to the Genesee River and from the Great Lakes, Ontario, down to the Pennsylvania border. But on top of that, there were other preemptive rights being sold. One of them was everything past the Genesee River all the way to Buffalo. And then there was another one that was sold that Phelps and Gorham turned around and sold to a guy named Robert Morris. The Native nations know nothing about this. In fact, they're actually hearing rumors while this is happening that the white men are selling their land to one another which isn't necessarily true. But but it kind of is. But it kind of is. And when Chief Red Jack and other leaders hear this, it's going to create huge tension and they're going to call people out. Hey, we heard you're selling our land. It's not for sale. Oh, don't worry. We know it's not for sale. We're just selling the rights if you do sell it. I I can just imagine the blank look on uh, the Seneca leader's faces as you tried to explain what was going on. You just explained it to me. And I've been researching this for two months now, and it's still hard for us to wrap our heads around it. How do you sit down with a council of sachems and try to explain that to them? I wouldn't believe them either. So, Andrew, like I said, the Phelps and Gorham Purchase was a huge chunk of Western New York. But this other purchase that was uh, from basically Rochester to Buffalo became under the stewardship of Robert Morris. And he was the representative for the Holland Company, which was a European-backed funded uh, land trust company that we're trying to you know all make some money things get sticky here because robert morris was a friend to the seneca you guys can't see through the microphone but i'm doing quotations here he was friend in the sense that he was always friendly to them mm-hmm. you know he'd buy them dinner you know he was always friendly to them he'd let them stay in his house if they were in town things like that i'm not saying he necessarily had their best interests at heart like a real friend would But even though he didn't own this preemptive right himself, he was promised 35,000 pounds sterling of purchase money if the Holland Company was actually able to acquire this land that they bought the rights for. So now all of a sudden, the friend of the Seneca is being offered, I don't even know how much 35,000 pounds of sterling silver is worth, but it's a lot of stinking money. It's a lot of money today, and I'm sure it was a lot of money then. So he starts going around and he is surveying all the land, getting it ready for sale in case they can talk the Seneca into selling. And so he's trying to come up with a way to convince the Seneca that he's sincere in his friendship. So he decides to send his son, Thomas Morris, to go and live amongst them and try and move in with them and just be a good friend to them for the next two years until I can figure out if this is a legitimate business uh, proposition. So how did this work out? Well, it worked out well. He did become friends with everyone. He kept trying to convince the Sachems to get a council together so they could discuss the land sales. But, Andrew, they wouldn't even discuss it. They'd say, nope, land's not for sale. And he said, well, can we just get together and talk about it? Nope. They knew that uh, if you got everybody together... And then you started showing lots of money and bringing lots of food and lots of alcohol. Anything can happen. So Red Jacket and a lot of the other sachems, corn planter and stuff, they were completely against even hearing it out because they were afraid what the people would say if it was to be even heard. So we'll stick a pin in Mr. Morris and we'll come back to him later. So during this whole complicated thing, Washington realizes that If the Iroquois continue to have to deal with land speculators and different states, that eventually they're going to get pushed into this Northwest Indian War. And that's the last thing he wants to have happen now because he's already had two armies destroyed and he needs to get the upper hand. So peace at all costs with the Iroquois is what he wants. There is a uh, gathering at Fort Stanwix in 1784 and Joseph Brandt is present. And he starts off by saying, hey guys, whatever we talk about here, any things that we finalize, I'm just a representative. I'm not a clan mother. I'm not a sachem. And whatever we decide here, I have to take back and have them ratify it before it becomes a treaty. So Brant takes the things and goes back to Buffalo and presents it before the council. And they say, nope, we don't agree to this at all. What do you think New York state thinks? They think it's an agreement and, uh, We have it in writing now that this is a treaty and uh, we can take all this land. And Brant's like, I told you. Did Brant sign something? Yes. Okay. But he said, this needs to be ratified by the council. I see what you mean. So to make things even worse, Andrew, Joseph Brant, he's trying to uh, work as an ambassador amongst the Iroquois. But then he decides to go to England, uh, most likely to drum up support from the English to help them in their up and coming wars. So after all of those talks with Joseph Brandt, he's just gone, and so the United States government has to find some new people to talk to. In 1789, the federal government finally got some teeth. You see, that's when the U.S. Constitution was finally ratified, which gave the federal government a lot more centralized power. Washington was able to get this law passed through Congress called the Non-Intercourse Act of 1790. Get your minds out of the gutter, it's not what it sounds like. Pretty much what it says is nobody is allowed to sell any Indian land to or from anybody else without the US being present at the treaty. New York probably liked that law about as much as a real non-intercourse law. New York petitioned the government to uh get it thrown out. They said, "Hey, we've got 26 different leases and some of them for 999 years." And the government said, you got to be kidding me. They nulled it and voided all of it. But New York didn't care. They continued to keep trying to squat on land and claim things and start clearing them. And eventually the Council of Sachems sent direct representatives to Washington to inform him, hey, your citizens are violating our treaties. And if they keep doing this, I don't see how we can stop our young warriors from joining this Western Confederacy uh, against you. And then Washington starts sweating. Okay, okay, okay. I hear you. And we really wanna get a lasting peace. And what can we do to help? People like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson are also whispering into Washington's ear saying, look, we really need to treat the Iroquois square. And we really need to make peace the utmost importance. Fast forward to 1792, Washington invites the six nations to send a whole delegation to come to the nation's capital. Which at this point is in what city, Caleb? Philadelphia. Right. The city of brotherly love. Let's see how that works out. So Brant, along with Cornplanter and forty-eight others, make the journey down from western New York. Washington pulls out the red carpet for them. He wants to give them fifteen hundred dollars just as a gift, and cattle to take back with them. And he asks them if they would be arbiters to help end this horrible Northwest Indian War knowing that the Iroquois hold a lot of clout. A lot of these tribes, like Caleb said, were prop nations in the past, and hopefully they can have a lot of sway to finally calming things down. Cornplanter says that when he leaves here, he'll set up a meeting this fall, and he'll try to get the Western nations to come to the table. And I wanted to take a little sidetrack real quick and mention another person who we haven't been able to fit into the narrative before. But this was a young guy who came along with the delegation named Peter Atzicuete. Andrew, I hope this sidetrack is going somewhere. Who is this guy and why is he important? He's important because he was a disciple of Samuel Kirkland. And the guy was only 26 years old, but he was really active in the American Revolution. When Polly Cooper and all them came down to Valley Forge, he was a teenager. And when I say teenager, I'm talking like maybe 12 or 13 years old but he still fought with the American army. When you say disciple, so was this guy like a traveling missionary? Yeah. Okay, yeah, translator and Bible scholar and all that. Now, who did the Oneida primarily work with when they were down in Valley Forge? It was uh, some unknown French guy, right? I think his name was Lafayette. It was Lafayette, but he is a little more famous than that. Anyway, Lafayette took an instant liking to this young man named Peter. And they developed a really close relationship. After the war was over, Lafayette wrote to Peter and asked him if he would like to move to France with him. He offered to give him a full French education. It took a few years, but eventually Peter's clan gave him permission to travel. And he went to Paris and lived with Lafayette and became his adopted son. And he stayed there for three years. He went to the best French schools, learned the language, became extremely popular and a regular attendee at King Louis' court. And at the end of that time, he returned to the Oneida nation. And once there, he became really active in these post-treaty negotiations, because again, he knew Oneida and French and English. He would travel around and go to European style balls. He apparently was a very well-known clarinet player, and he would even go to social parties and do traditional Oneida dances to entertain the guests. So he's down here in the nation's capital in the winter of 1772, but he doesn't get to really participate much in it because he comes down with some kind of lung ailment. We don't know if it's tuberculosis or some kind of pulmonary embolism, but he ends up dying really suddenly on March 19th, only 26 years old. And in that time, he lived a pretty adventurous life. The cool thing is is that the American government really mourned him and Washington threw a state-sponsored military funeral. Jefferson writes in a letter to his wife saying that he attended the funeral and other people were there, like Henry Knox, the Secretary of War, and they had a military band playing a dirge, and they said that 10,000 people showed up for the funeral. And he's buried very close to Independence Hall. And then Washington, on top of that, wrote a letter of condolence to the Iroquois diplomats. Do you think you can imitate the great Washington with this quote, Caleb? Well, that's a tough one. Uh, From what I remember reading from Alexander Hamilton, he always described him as being very soft-spoken, unless he lost his temper, which happened very rarely. But let me try this. I partake of your sorrow on account that it has pleased the great spirit to take from you a member by death since your residence in this city. I have ordered that your tears should be wiped away according to your custom and the presents be sent to the relations of the deceased. Our lives are all in the hands of our maker. That was very somber. Thank you, Caleb. After the mourning process was completed, Washington took Brant to the side and told him that he really wants to get a peace treaty hammered out. And he asked Joseph if he could arrange it. Brant said, you know, I don't think so. He returned to his house, which was now in the Grand River area of southern Canada. But what did Cornplanter do, Caleb? Did he go home and do nothing, or did he actually follow through with what he said? He did keep his word, and uh, he, with his companion Red Jacket, traveled to Ohio and asked the Western tribes to make peace. For 10 days, they held council with their leaders, and Red Jacket He was going to do his best, so he talked for five hours nonstop. It was said that it was a very moving oration, but it was all for nothing because uh, the Shawnee ended up mocking the Seneca and telling Red Jacket and the other Seneca that they were just pawns of the Americans and they were not going to sue for peace. If they wanted to be the United States lapdogs, that's fine, but we're not interested. So Red Jacket and Cornplanter returned to the American capital in Philadelphia, but they did not have good news for Washington. They just told him that, "Hey, we tried, but uh, they're not interested what you're selling." But Washington and the federal government were really overjoyed. They congratulated Cornplanter and the others for their efforts. And you gotta look at it this way. Washington realizes that, okay, great, Cornplanter finally is at least helping us because Cornplanter was the war chief for the Seneca that fought against the American army in the American Revolution. So they saw this as a win. And even though it looked like a fail maybe to some people, Washington was just happy that these people were at least talking to him, and therefore he didn't have to worry about them pushing the Seneca to join into the war. Now Corn Planter we're gonna see is really trying to negotiate things the best way for his people. And we're going to talk about him more coming up. But he's not in Washington's pocket. He still doesn't trust Washington, but he knows that peace might be the best option. But if war is a better option, he's totally down with that too. So let's see as things go into the next two years. In 1794, Washington appointed a guy named Timothy Pickering to be his official representative to try and get a council together to get a peace agreement that would last. Pickering writes to the Iroquois and they start meeting together in August of 1794 at Buffalo Creek to discuss how they want to handle these Americans. Pickering invited them all to come to Canandaigua for the conference, but they were really apprehensive and said, mm, we really prefer not to travel. In fact, Cornplanter and the others said, you know what? we actually don't even want to talk about a treaty right now. You see, a lot of the young people were really clamoring to try and join the Western Confederacy. In fact, at this point in time, there were over 100 Seneca out West fighting. And remember, they've destroyed two American armies in the past few years. But the clan mothers are hearing all this, and we know that they really do have the final say. And they step in and say, look, peace is definitely the better option. According to Seneca historian John Mohawk, Cornplanter apparently stands up and starts mouthing off to the women. A decision to go to war should belong to the warriors. And this is actually kind of interesting that he said this because for as long as we've been doing this podcast, we've seen that even though the Sachems and the war chiefs kind of run the war party once it's been declared, It's always had to be approved by the clan mothers before the war chief can even be chosen. Because, do you remember what they would do if the warriors wanted to go, but the women didn't want them to? They wouldn't pack their lunch. They would give them no food for their road. Okay, if you're that stubborn and really want to go, you can't have any of our corn. You can't have any of our bags. You can't have any of our supplies. Let's see how far your war party gets by sundown. So they're basically saying to the clan mothers and the women right now, this is men's business. You know, if we want to fight, we're men, we're going to fight. But a few days later, a messenger from one of the Tuscarora brothers comes, and he informs them that the Western Confederacy has been defeated at the Battle of Fallen Timbers just a few days ago on August 20th by Matt Anthony Wayne. And now the clan Mothers got a lot of leverage because they can be like, you idiots, we just blew our chance for getting a good peace because the Americans are going to know that the Western Confederacy's dead. And now we're not a high priority anymore. So you're going to this conference and you're going to this conference. We need to go to Canandaigua. We can't make them come to us. We need to get there as fast as we can and get a peace negotiated quickly. So they ended up sending a message to Timothy Pickering and they told him, uh, since you can't come to Buffalo, how about we meet somewhere a little more in the middle for us? How about we meet in Canandaigua? Which is about 80 miles west of Buffalo. So that'll save a little travel time for Pickering, and they all agree that Canadegua will be the place. If you recall from our Sullivan expedition, too, Canadegua was one of the the main Seneca villages at the north end of Canadegua Lake. Washington asked to be kept up to speed with everything that was going on. Henry Knox wrote an encouraging note to Washington saying that had they refused Colonel Pickering's invitation, the aspect would have been ill. But their decision to change the place of the council fire has a pacific appearance. Pickering wants to leave nothing to chance, so he sends a group of men to Buffalo Creek led by a guy named Horatio Jones. Their job is to get there and ask the Iroquois if they need any assistance at all getting to the council. They really also wanted to make sure that there were no British agents there whispering in their ear, telling them not to go. Real quick backstory on Jones. He was captured by the Seneca during the Revolutionary War and was adopted by a sister of Corn Planter. So during his time among them, he of course became fluent in Seneca. And in the years following that, he became an interpreter and negotiator. Anyway... When he got to Buffalo Creek, he and the others were really surprised because he said, quote, the Indians worked with uncommon zeal to get in their harvest of corn, the men and boys assisting women and girls, that it might be accomplished in time that all might go to the treaty. So he could really see that everybody really wanted to come there. And he was really encouraged by that. But there were also British agents in the area. They were really shocked when they heard that these nations were planning on going to meet with the Americans. One British officer named Colonel Powell found out, and he tried to stop them, but after he realized there was nothing he could do, he said, quote, Well, damn them, and let them go. Jones writes a letter back to Pickering and tells him, The Iroquois are coming soon, so I'm heading over to Geneseo, and we're going to make a way station there and put on kettles of food and everything, so this huge caravan that's coming has a place to stop and rest. And get ready, because we're going to have a full house. So the first nations to arrive are the Seneca and the Onondaga. They make it on October 14th. And slowly people begin triculating in. And when we say a lot of people came, how many is a lot, Caleb? Well, uh, in all, there was over 1,600 members from the Iroquois nations. In a lot of the Seneca towns, literally every person came. So to kick the thing off, Pickering was really sensitive to... Iroquois culture. They began the traditional Haudenosaunee greeting from the woods. They called the gathering to order. They went through the condolence ceremonies. Remember, these councils were not rushed. What was it? We said it was a lot like an entmoot. You couldn't be hasty. You needed to do the greetings. You needed to take your time. You needed to be polite. You needed to introduce everybody. And anybody that wanted to talk was allowed to talk. You know, we as Westerners really like to get right to business. We want to address things that we want addressed. So once they get through this, again, like Caleb said, everybody's allowed to participate. Uh, There was also a third-party group that joined, and that was the Quakers. They had just recently moved to the area. They had legitimately purchased some land from the Senecas. And we mentioned before that the Quakers were these really open-minded people. They wanted to deal with fair land dealings. They thought to themselves, we need to be here because the Iroquois are our friends, And we want to make sure they don't get cheated. And we would feel bad and think that our religion was worthless if we didn't go. Didn't make sure that nothing was slipped past them. Another quick factoid. One of the women that was in this group of Quakers was a lady named Jemima Wilkinson. Uh, We don't have time to talk about her, but she was, um, different. Uh, Look her up. Then Red Jacket stands up and he addresses the assembly by saying, Brother, we, the sachems of the six nations, will now tell our minds. The business of this treaty is to brighten the chain of friendship between us and the 15 fires. And that 15 fires is alluding to at this point, America had grown to 15 states. So that's where that uh, symbology comes from. But although the 15 fires of uh, the United States government were represented, not all of the six nations were necessarily represented at this treaty. That's right. You see, there were some members of the Mohawk nation present, but there were no Mohawk sachems in attendance. And the reason is Joseph Brandt, of course. Pickering really wanted Brandt to come, but he just did not. Instead, he decided to head to Detroit to deal with the aftermath from the Battle of Fallen Timbers. One of our friends and listeners named Ben Doolittle actually wrote me and corrected me saying, it wasn't Six Nations there, it was only five. And I was like, what? No, the treaty says Six Nations. You must be wrong. Don't tell a Mohawk that they're wrong, because I looked it (laughs) up and he's totally right. So why did the Six Nations get written on the treaty? Well, Pickering, I actually found out, did write Joseph Brandt and explain that because he said, quote, as one of the six nations, I did not think it proper to name them as not included in the treaty. I consider the whole six as forming one Confederate nations. So that's him trying to sweet talk it saying, look, I know you guys didn't want to come, but I wrote it in there, six nations, because I wanted to make sure that if the Mohawk wanted to join in on what we've got going on here, we've got it written that way. So if you want to get on board with it, great. So that's where the confusion really comes from. So I hope that clarifies things. So even to this day, it's kind of a bit of contention between the Mohawk and the other of the five nations on whether the Treaty of Canandaigua is a good thing or not. Um, A lot of the Mohawk point to the Treaty of Canandaigua when they're trying to deal with land rights. So they are kind of saying that they will go along with it but they will also point out that we did never we never signed on to this i hope i've done it justice if i've gotten it totally wrong guys please write but that's the best way i can explain it then pickering opened the floor up to comments anybody who has a grievance that they want to have addressed please speak now and they did and what were some of these issues that got brought up andrew Oh, you know, the usual old treaties that were being forced upon the Six Nations that they never ratified. Treaties that were ratified with the Americans that weren't being followed. Land squatters, New York State trying to steal their territory. No justice for people uh, being accused of killing Iroquoian peoples. Uh, You know, actually, a lot of those issues are the same ones they complain about today, aren't they? (laughs) I thought you were going to say, you know, little issues like that. Murder without justice, land stealing, treaties not being followed, little stuff. But we digress. Uh, The council did get derailed by a couple things. Uh, Firstly, two of the elderly Oneida leaders died. Pickering writes, they were really advanced in age, but we had to stop everything for several days so that the family and friends could deal with the losses and perform the funeral rites. And then there was a second hiccup, because that's one of William Johnson's sons showed up. I'm surprised he wasn't uh, taken out of town on a rail, honestly. For being a Tory, you know, in in the Revolutionary War, you'd think that there would still be a lot of bad blood there. Yeah, well, Pickering instantly calls him out and says, this guy's a good-for-nothing British agent, and he does not belong here. Pickering had orders from Washington to make sure that no British agents show up, and Johnson is one of those agents you definitely don't want around if you're an American. Pickering did bring it before the council and said, look, I can't kick this guy out. It's your council, but you guys need to kick him out or this thing's over with. And when the Sachems deal with having this whole thing be for nothing over one guy, yeah, Johnson was on his way to Canada the next day. Finally, in early November, terms were reached. The borders were set and the U.S. was given permission to build a road across Western New York for wagon trading to connect to Lake Erie. And that's really important for the United States because the Erie Canal won't be built for several decades and you could not send ships from Lake Ontario to Lake Erie because there's this small little cascade known as... Latchworth Gorge? Niagara Falls. (laughs) So to have a road to go from Buffalo across New York State could get a lot of supplies going to the West. So that's why it was really important. And in the treaty, it also stipulated that United States traders could use all the waterways. You know, they could travel on Lake Ontario. They could use Genesee River and these other rivers if they wanted to without being hindered by the Seneca. And the Six Nations got a lot of good clauses stuck in here. And some of these aren't even found in any Indian treaties going forward. But the key one was the United States said it would not interfere with the nation's sovereignty. That's a big one. Because that means that these six nations have the right to self-determination and that their land is their land and the United States cannot send agents onto their land and tell them how to conduct their laws and their business. So that was a really important thing. Another thing, this was not a capitulation treaty. There was no official surrender. This is an agreement between sovereign governments. So even to this day, you can see that the six nations are very adamant about these rights and we're going to talk a lot more about how these things come into play in legal terms in the future, but that's not for this episode. So the thing is finally signed on November 11th, 1794, and it was taken back to the U.S. Capitol, and Washington and the Congress signed it into law January 21st, 1795. Now Washington, if you can remember from our past episodes, he's no stranger to the Iroquois. uh, He's an Older man at this point, but when he was young, he had met Guy Suta. He had traveled with a lot of them. He had fought against some of them, so he knows a little bit about their ways. And one thing he knows is that to ratify an agreement, you need a wampum belt. And so George Washington commissioned his own wampum belt to be made. And this is a national treasure that you can still see today. It's called the George Washington Wampum Belt. I believe the Onondaga have it, and we'll post a picture of it. But it's 13 interlinking arms connected to two people standing outside a house. And so the house is to symbolize the Haudenosaunee, and the persons on one door is the Seneca, and the person on the other door is the Mohawk, the keepers of the two-door. And then the 13 are to represent the 13 original states. Now, I've read some detractors to the belt, Kayla, because a lot of people point out that the two people standing outside the longhouse are smaller than the other 13 people that are interlocking their arms with everybody else. You know, kind of showing that the Americans are bigger and more powerful. And that could be taken as kind of ignorant. But the interesting thing is, Andrew, that I actually read a quote from an Iroquois sachem that used the same analogy that if that is what they were trying to say, uh, there's some truth to that. Because he said, when the white man came here, they were small and we nurtured them, and they grew bigger and stronger, and my people have grown smaller and weaker. So now it is time for you to take care of us. So he's basically charging them to not take advantage of them in their crippled state, because they were friends to the English when they first moved here when they could have you know wiped them out when there was only a few hundred settlers but they nurtured them they gave them food when they showed up in november when there was nothing to eat and uh, taught them how to uh taught them of their medicines and things like that so i don't know if that's why george washington had this belt made like that but if he did it wasn't necessarily to show how they were bigger and more powerful than them. He could have actually been doing this in reference to what the sachem had said. So let's talk about what the U.S. government is supposed to give. What are the stipulations of this treaty? The U.S. government was to give an initial payment of $10,000, which is a in 1794 is a sizable amount. And also they're to give $4,500 in cloth every year, forever. And uh, there's a lot of broken treaties out there, Andrew, but they have given them the cloth every year. (laughs) I I think the cloth is probably the least important thing, but But it's it's symbolic. Yes. And Peter Jemison of the Seneca writes, This annual distribution of cloth is a 200-plus-year-old affirmation of the obligations the United States government has made in this treaty. And we were actually just today at a gathering at Ganondaghan where Peter Jemison spoke, and he talked about how he was a child, and he remembered going with his relatives waiting in line to get the calico cloth that was distributed by uh, the U.S. government. He said that his part was like a one-yard stretch of cloth, but I think today it's dwindled down to like a third of a yard that each person gets. It's it's just a symbolic piece. Chief Irving Prowless, Jr. writes that we didn't have a lawyer present, So we did not put in a cost of living clause, pretty much saying that had we put in that it was $4,500 adjusted for inflation, it would be a lot more today and people would actually get quite a bit of cloth that would actually support them. But now since they get the same amount every year, uh, we're getting just a scrap piece of paper each pretty much. But they still accept it because it's acknowledging the treaty, just the fact that the government gives it and they accept it. And every year on November 11th, whether it rains, whether we get driving wind or snow, or it's absolutely freezing cold, the Canandaigua Treaty is celebrated at Treaty Rock on the courthouse lawn. Members from all six nations, yes, even the Mohawk, come. The United States government and members of the local Quaker Meeting House come. And every year we brighten the chain of friendship with speeches in English and the different Haudenosaunee languages. Now, Andrew, in the Constitution, there's this little clause that states something along the line of treaties superseding other laws. That's right. When dealing with treaties between two different sovereign nations, the U.S. Constitution is very clear, and it says that all treaties that are signed in the law by the president, supersede all United States law up until the Constitution. So if New York State tried to pass something, or your local township tried to pass something, or the U.S. Congress tried to pass something that went against this treaty, it would be struck down as unconstitutional. So that means that the Treaty of Canandaigua next to the Constitution is the highest law in the land. Now, this is going to be really key when we talk about episodes in the future. So, listeners, remember that. So we're going to wrap it up for this episode. But like Andrew and I said, we actually were working on a biography of Red Jacket throughout his life. He was very vocal in this particular treaty. And we didn't talk about him a lot in this episode. But that's because we are going to have a whole episode on him. So we don't want to duplicate what we're going to say. Uh, So after this treaty is signed, what's going to happen? Uh, So we're going to talk about that also in our next episode. So be looking out for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. We've already got a lot of the research done on that. So hopefully it won't take two and a half months like this episode did. Also real quick, I wanted to point out that I was interviewed by the One Dish, One Mic podcast. It's done by two indigenous gentlemen named Sean and Carl, and they were very gracious to have me on, and the episode is finally posted. So please look up their podcast, and you can listen to us discuss this podcast and uh, Iroquois history. So it's really cool. Oh, let's talk about the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. We sent out a lot of coffee mugs. If you're new, Andrew and I are fronting the bill to buy you an Iroquois History and Legends coffee cup and mail it to you. You're not going to find a better deal than that. Right now, I've sent one to everyone that has sent us their information. If you left us an iTunes review and sent us an email saying that you did, but you have not gotten a coffee cup, email us again, because you know we got so many of them, and I, some might have slipped through the cracks. So feel free to email us again if you haven't. And uh, if you want one, all you have to do is join the Wild Sweet Potato Clan and to do that, you just have to go on iTunes and leave us a positive review. Disclaimer, the Wild Sweet Potato Clan is not an official clan. It is not endorsed by any indigenous nations, and it is for fun only. And you will only have your name on the website. It does not bestow any benefits other than a free coffee bug. Thank you. Thank you for that, Andrew. <laughs> You probably could have talked a little faster to make it even better, but but I'll give you props for that. Please like us on Facebook. Even though we may go a month sometimes without posting an episode, we really are pretty good about posting updates on our Facebook, articles that go along with episodes, other interviews, and it just creates a better experience for everybody, I think, if you're a friend on Facebook. You can also check out our website, longhousepodcast.com, email us longhousepodcast at gmail.com. And follow us on Twitter with the handle at Iroquois History. Anything else, Andrew? I think that we will get ready for Red Jacket. We will see you all soon. Have a great week.